Good morning, church. I am delighted to be here. A greeting to everybody at home watching online and in Alma and in Mount Pleasant. Uh, the reason why I'm particularly delighted to be here is because I got, I got to go away for a little while. Uh, I got to go home to Ireland and visit my mom and my brother, my sister and their spouses and nieces and nephews. And I'm not joking, the sun was shining in Ireland, which is a rare, rare moment. And I loved it. But I love being back here in this moment right now. Um, uh, before I open up God's word, uh, I wanted to give uh, a heads up on, you know, we, we're praying and fasting right now. And the reason for that is because we want to say to our God, Lord, what is the direction that you would have us go? I, and I don't want to get that wrong. I, I, you probably don't want to get that wrong either for your life, for this community. What is the direction? How would you lead us and guide us, God? And so thank you for praying and for fasting over these few weeks. Uh, please continue to pray for the church, for the elders, for the staff, for myself, uh, that we would have such a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Amen? that we would always uh, be found right in the center of his will, which is the best, best place to be. And I couldn't help but think of the story of the tourist, American tourist who went to Ireland and got lost looking for the road to Dublin. And so they pulled off on the side of the road and there was an elderly gentleman there. I believe it's a true story. And they rolled down the window and they said, excuse me, we're lost. Um, could you tell us how to get onto the road to Dublin? And the elderly gentleman was just delighted, delighted to talk to them. He's like, you guys are Americans, wow. He says, yes, no problem. He says, so you head up this road, go through the village there. You see the village? They're like, yep. And it's a true story. Go through the village and he says, and you're gonna see the bus stop and then you got Paddy Kennedy's pub. You can't miss it because it's bright red. Paddy Kennedy's pub and there's a left turn after Paddy Kennedy's turn. Do you have that? And they're like, yeah, Paddy Kennedy's pub, red, Left turn, and he looks at him, yeah, don't take that. <laughs> so, I, I love that story. And so, all that to say, we, I, what I would love to do is actually this fall, I want to stand up right here, and we're going to do an entire series where I want to give clear, clear, crystal clear, Holy Spirit-inspired direction for us as a local church as we head forward. So I have an invitation to each one of you. On the 25th, and I think it is the 31st of this month, we are going to have vision nights, two vision nights. And this is a little bit of a, of a preview for what is coming up around the corner. The 25th is in Alma, and the 31st will be uh, in this room right here uh, in, in Mount Pleasant. And this particular event is going to be untypical in terms of a, a church meeting or a church gathering. It'll be very, very different. And it's going to just uh, be the beginnings of casting vision. And I'll be honest with you, what I'm looking to do here is I want to recruit an army. I want to recruit an army of individuals who would be absolutely on board for being in the center of God's will in this community and, and how we can propel the gospel forward in this place to our loved ones. And so whether you consider yourself, man, I am like core, core part of this church, I bleed community church, or whether you're here for the first time today, you are invited to either of those vision nights. Come, and I'm so proud and excited of the church that we would be on our knees, and in particular, looking to make sure that we're not just all about us, that there is an external view to the church for those who are not yet a part of the family of God. So exciting, exciting stuff. All right, let's open up God's Word. Welcome to week number three of this series. Some theologians have called this the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8. And that's where we are at. That's a grandiose statement to make, but maybe it is very true. This chapter is certainly filled with what I would just describe as power-packed statements. 
several statements that Christians over the centuries have just kind of clung on to with both fists as uh, tightly as they can. So what I want to do is I want to read the verse that we're going to look at today and focus on today uh, and see how the Lord will speak to us and bless us. So we're in uh, chapter 8, looking at verse 28. And we know, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Short and sweet. I'm going to read it again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. If you have just heard that for the first time in your life today, I'm so excited for you that this would come to have great meaning and it would shape you. But perhaps there are some Christians, particularly if you've been in church for any period of time or maybe even years, and you're like, oh, I've read that one before. I know that scripture. In fact, I bet you there are people who are listening to me right now who have read that and actually deliberately they have said, man, I've not just read that, but I've read that and I've gone back to it again and again. There are some Christians who have really, really taken this to heart. In fact, I bet you there are even people listening to me right now, and you've memorized these words. This is one of those passages that people, they, they stick it up on the refrigerator. I, I want to see that again. So let me read it one more time. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Can I have an amen on that? So let me ask you this question with regards to this verse. Is there anyone here who thinks that God has said that your life is going to be easy? Or that God has promised somewhere in his Bible that um, you're not going to have any problems in your life that will only ever experience nice things or helpful things, or to use a word from this passage, good things. Is that what this passage is saying? Is that what God is saying? Does God promise that you will never know Loss, or grief, or pain, or difficulty? And of course, we know the answer to that is no. I don't know that that is a promise in the Bible. Some would like to preach a message that is only sunshine, only promotion, only money, only a bigger house. But I cannot find that in the Bible. And in fact, our experience tells us quite clearly that Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, can encounter such severe storms in our life that they can blow us over and leave us soaked to the skin. Kind of mesmerized. What just happened to me? That was not very pleasant. There are nine verses in particular that precede the verse that we just read, verse 28. And the context of the nine verses before this wonderful thing that says God is going to do good things in your life actually talks about the difficulty. The language is, that it uses the phrase, your present sufferings. I wonder how many people are listening to me right now and you would say, I know all about present sufferings. That is my present tense reality in my life. And the Bible is so encouraging in these first previous nine verses because what it does is it tries to kind of move us towards a place where it says, but I want you to know something, that there will come a day in your life where you will look back at your present sufferings and they will pale in comparison to the glory of the presence of God that you live in. And so there's this encouragement in the Bible. The verses go on a little bit further and then obviously your mind goes to then say, well, God, can I please get to that day? 
I would like to get to that day right now. So God, when will that be? And there's this sense of waiting in all of our lives. We long for that day when our present sufferings are no more, where they pale in comparison. God, would you please come back soon? Would you please return? I don't think anybody listening to me has sort of never experienced a moment where you just got to pray to God and say, Lord, would you please just whisk me out of this present suffering and just take me away? Would you just wave your magic wand and go, ta-da, and all of this angst and difficulty and tears would just fade? Even as we look at these nine verses, it goes a little bit further. If you can even get your head around this, it actually refers to creation itself. That creation is in this sense of unease. Creation is saying that something's not right. Too. And if you can get your head around this, that the very skies, that the very the waters that are teeming with life, that the very earth, something inside, and the language is, talks about uh, things like decay and frustration and bondage. That's the language in these first nine verses, that all creation itself, and the language in there is really specific. It says, creation is groaning, groaning. God, when is that day going to come? Because it's as though creation itself realizes like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever felt like that? Like it's not supposed to be like this, God. It's supposed to be something quite different. And creation is groaning, groaning. It's like this headache that just increases. Have you ever had this where you become debilitated in all of that? Jesus, when are you coming back? And then in the first nine verses from creation, it turns its attention to you. And it says, and you know about this too, not just creation. You know about present sufferings. And so here's what you try to do. It says, you try to pray. But that the verses say, you can't. Because it says, you don't even know what to pray, and you don't even know how to pray. Because things can be so difficult. This bondage and decay and frustration, this groaning, this roller coaster ride of difficulty. It says you don't even know how to pray, you don't even know what to pray. And then more encouragement from the Word of God, it says, but the Holy Spirit comes in and He prays and He gives intercession over your life and He places words and He gives you words to pray so that you can move forward. That's what leads us to this verse that says, and in all of that, I know something. And I know, I know, I know that in all of these things, so life is not always terrible, right? There's joyful peak moments in our life, and then there are painful realities in our life. We all know this. But in all of that roller coaster ride, we know that God, and this is what this verse is saying, that He is continually at work in your life, no matter the up, no matter the down. And that you need to be able to say this. The scripture is longing for you to add your voice to this truth where you would say, yeah, but I know this too. And I know this as well, that life feels like a roller coaster and I know what frustration and bondage and decay and groaning looks like and sometimes I don't even have words to express what's going on, but I know, but I know that God is at work in my life specifically because I love him and I'm being called according to his purposes. This frustration, this pain, it's not for nothing. It's not wasted. It's not just pain for pain's sake. Incredibly, incredibly, God says, I will be active in what you and I despise. Discomfort, ill ease, loss and suffering. 
And this verse says, not only will God be active in that, but he will be active for your good. This, que- this verse is addressing, I think, questions that we've all certainly wondered about before. God, how is it that we're supposed to understand when bad things happen to us? And, and what is that a reflection of in us? Is that because we're bad people? Is it because you're a bad God? How are we supposed to understand losing a job, filing for divorce? How are we supposed to understand hurtful words? How are we supposed to understand when somebody comes and they take their pound of flesh and they leave you limping? God, are you saying that you're in that? Is this your way of loving me? Is that what this verse means? There's a gentleman by the name of Flannery O'Connor, and he wrote a short story. Um, the story set many years ago about a little boy by the name of Ruller. Ruller thinks very little of himself. Ruller seems to understand. He's not like everyone else. He seems to be a little different. In fact, one night he overhears his parents talking, and his dad says to his mom, Ruller's an unusual one. Why does he always play by himself? His mother answers, well, how am I supposed to know? One day, he's in the woods, and Ruller spots a wild turkey that's been injured, and he sets off in hot pursuit. Oh, if only I could catch a turkey, he cries, and he will catch it even if he has to run out of the state. He sees himself in his imagination coming home, walking triumphantly through the front door of his own home with a turkey slung around his shoulders and the whole family in awe, celebrating in delight. Look at Ruller. He has caught a wild turkey. Ruller, where did you get this turkey? He imagines himself answering, oh, I caught it in the woods. Maybe you'd like me to catch one for you sometime. But then the thought crosses his mind. Listen to this. God, he'll probably make me chase that turkey all afternoon for nothing. He knows you shouldn't think this way about God, but that's how he feels. I can't help how I feel. How I feel is how I feel. Maybe I am unusual. Ruller finally captures the turkey when it rolls over dead from a previous gunshot wound. And he finally hoists it up onto his shoulders and he begins his triumphant messianic march back through the center of the village. Men are turning their heads, complimenting him. His chest fills with pride. And then he remembers the things he thought before he caught the bird. God, I shouldn't have thought that about you. That was a pretty bad thought. I should be grateful. I'm much obliged to you, God. You are mighty generous to me. Maybe getting this bird was a sign. Maybe God wants me to be a preacher. He enters the town with the turkey slung around his shoulders. He suddenly has this urge inside of him. I I want to do something good. I want to do something righteous. But he doesn't know what to do. He wishes he could perhaps bump into a beggar. And suddenly he prays, Lord, send me a beggar before I go home. Maybe God will send me a beggar because I am unusual. Please, God. Send me one right now. And the minute he says it, an old beggar woman heads straight towards him. His heart stomps up and down in his chest. And he springs at the woman, shouting, here, here. He thrusts his one dime into, from his pocket into her hands. And he dashes on without looking. Slowly, his heart begins to calm. And he begins to feel a new feeling. 
like being happy and embarrassed all at the same time. Maybe he thinks to himself, I ought to give all my money to this poor beggar woman. He, he's never felt like this. He feels as though the ground does not need to hold him up any longer. And then Ruller notices a small band of boys shuffling behind him. He turns around and he asks generously, you all want to see my turkey? They stare at him. Where'd you get that turkey? Oh, I found it in the woods. I chased it dead. See, it's been hit under the wing. Let me see it, says one of the boys. And Ruller hands the turkey to the boy as he simply slings it over his shoulders. And all of the boys turn around and they saunter away with his turkey. And Ruller stands there. The boy is now perhaps a quarter mile away with his turkey before he moves. And finally, they're so far away he cannot see them anymore. And he creeps towards home. No money, no turkey. And he walks slowly until he begins to notice it's actually quite dark. And so he begins to run. Flannery O'Connor ends this tale, and in my opinion, it feels so unresolved and it feels so haunting. It says he ran faster and faster until he turned up the road to his house. His heart was running as fast as his legs, and he was certain that something awful was coming behind him, was tearing behind him with its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. What does this mean? I think the author reveals how so many Christians feel and think about God. I think it exposes us. Our God, it seems, is one who benevolently gives turkeys and then capriciously simply takes them away. And when he gives them to us, it seems to signal some kind of interest that he has in us some pleasure towards us, and we feel good, and we feel close to God, and we feel inspired, and we want to do good things, and we want to be generous, and then he seems to just take it away, and we feel rejected, and that seems to signal somehow some kind of displeasure in our life. Perhaps he remembers our sins even better than we remember our own sins. This must be retaliation from God towards us, and we feel cast aside by God. God why are you so fickle? God, why are you so unpredictable? God, why? Why do you build me up only to tear me down? Church, listen to me. You cannot assume that God feels about you the way that you feel about you. Unless you love yourself compassionately, intensely, and freely. I'll say it again. You cannot assume that God feels about you the way that you feel about you unless you love yourself compassionately and intensely and freely. Blaise Pascal said, God made man in his image and man returned the compliment. We feel ourselves unusual. Bad things happen to us. We must be bad people. Maybe he's a bad God. Maybe we're all unusual. We feel hatred towards ourselves. We interpret the pain of our existence and our experience as an affirmation that God must also feel hatred towards us too. It's actually a form of idolatry. 
my imagination often thinks of a little statue carved into the cleft of some rock somewhere with some poor soul kneeling down before it, which probably isn't very helpful. Of course, we know idolatry is more far-reaching than that. It stands for everything and anything that we hold with higher regard and value and devotion than God himself in our lives. Perhaps one of the most subtle and destructive forms of idolatry is not a little statue in the cleft of a rock, but actually a wrong, wrong, wrong image of God that we bow down to that looks a whole lot like you and me. The Spirit of God today wants you to see the ongoing activity of God in your life for good, especially in the context of you getting bumped around, especially in the context of the bruises that you receive. God, my kids are going astray. Where are you? This must be punishment. God, what are you doing? I genuinely cannot pay my bills. Have I done something wrong? Have I offended you? Brennan Manning says this, a slip for an alcoholic is a terrifying thing. The obsession with the mind and the body, with booze, it returns like the fury of a sudden storm. And when that person sobers up, he or she is devastated. Two options in this moment. What are you going to do when things go south? How will you interpret this? Option number one, God hates me. When, where were you when I needed you? I will once again yield to fear and depression and devastation and defeat in my life. Or option number two, I can run into the arms of my father. Those are your two options. I can choose to live as a victim of my disease or I can run into the arms of my heavenly father and as we learned last week and we can cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. How many of you feel loved by God when all is well? When your life is put together and everything seems in place, self-acceptance is relatively easy in that moment. We, Amy, we may even claim in those moments to kind of like ourselves a little bit when we're strong when we're in control, when we're on top, as we would say in Ireland, I'm in fine form, thank you very much. A sense of security begins to crystallize. But what happens when life simply falls through the cracks? What happens when we sin and when we fail? What happens when your dream fails? What happens when your investments begin to crash? What happens when you are regarded with suspicion? What happens when people are cruel and things don't go the way that you want them to go? What happens when we are grieving? What happens in truth when you come face to face with the human condition in other people and the human condition inside of yourself? Ask anybody who's gone through a separation or a divorce. Do you feel put together right now? Is your sense of security intact? Do you have a strong sense of self-worth? And they will look at you and say, no, I don't. Do you still feel like a beloved child of God who cries out, Abba, Father? I can't, I can't get those words out of my mouth. I cannot put words to my prayers. Where's the goodness of God now? To which God comes in 
with Romans chapter 8, verse 28, roaring in perhaps one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, saying, you need to know, you need to be able to say this with confidence in the context of suffering and waiting and groaning, in the context of this roller coaster ride where one minute all seems well with the world and in the next minute it seems as though somebody has just punched you in the gut and God says, in the middle of a lost child, in the middle of a lost job, in the middle of a divorce or abortion or depression, in the middle of abuse, I am relentlessly pursuing you and I am active for your good because you and I love each other and you have been called according to my purposes. Church, God's not playing games with you. Some of you need to hear this. The bad things that have happened to you, you need to hear this. God does not condone evil. He's not some master chess player up there saying, ha ha, I wonder how this is going to go for them. God does not sanction evil. God does not hold his love from you because you do evil things. He does not to delight sort of in leveraging pain just so I can shape you, but he will not waste suffering. He's the only one that I know that can come to something that causes devastation and say, I will recreate and reshape this. I will work in and through this for you. He would say to you today, I want you to quit interpreting the tough licks of your life as some interpretation as to how I feel about you. Would you quit projecting onto me your own feelings about yourself? That's not how I feel. That's how you feel. In this moment of your life today, if you have limped your way into community church, and you feel fragile. The Old Testament would describe you as a bruised reed. And God says, I'm not going to crush you because you're a bruised reed. The Old Testament talks about a candle just before it goes out. It says, you feel like a smoldering wick. And God says, I I'm not going to snuff you out. I'm not going to quench that. With me, when it's hard, you're safe. Especially when it's hard. You see, I think you've been listening to yourself for far too long. And today I want you to listen to God. Look at the two qualifying and motivating considerations in this passage. It's this, that God loves you and that God calls you. Did you see it at the end of this verse? For those who love and are called according to his purposes. And when you interpret bad stuff as a reflection of bad you, here's what you're doing. You're discarding God's love for you and his calling over your life. When you interpret bad stuff as a bad you coming from a bad God, you are dismantling God's love over your life and his calling over your life. And we know, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is doing a good work in your life because of his love and his calling. And God wants you to know this. He wants you today, would you alter your attitude towards yourself and maybe for the first time in your life, take sides with God and not with you. Maybe for the first time with your life, Take sides with what God says and not with what you say about your own self-evaluation. You see, self-rejection 
particularly in the context of suffering, is one of the deadly enemies of the spiritual life. Things are going bad. I must be awful and God is terrible. Because it contradicts one massive truth, that you're loved by God. If you walk through every painful moment thinking, this is me because I'm an awful person and he's an awful God, it contradicts this macro truth in the word of God that calls you his beloved. That you are fully known by God, fully known by God, and fully loved by God, knowing everything about you. You see, being loved by God constitutes the core of your existence and your identity. I'm going to say that again, because that's a huge statement. Please listen to me. Being loved by God constitutes the core of your existence and your identity. And if you're going to go through every piece of suffering, hating yourself, blaming yourself, hating God, blaming God, well, here's what you're going to miss out on. Two essential pillars of your life. You're going to walk around saying, then I am not on the receiving end of him calling me Abba, me calling him Abba, and him calling me my beloved child. Therefore, I'm going to get lost about who I am and where I'm going. My very identity and purpose will be lost. Do you hear what God is saying to you today? Would you give yourself a break? Would you actually learn to be gentle with yourself so that you could experience the intimate, heartfelt compassion of Jesus Christ, especially when things are hard? And when you do that, you allow an opportunity for Jesus to invade a hard life that oftentimes has been turned into a hardened soul with his goodness. Okay, his goodness. So what is his goodness? God is at work in all of these things for those who live him, love him and are called according to his purpose to bring about, the scripture says, goodness. Well, what is that? What does that mean, God? Well, let me tell you what this does not mean, and I mentioned this very briefly at the start. It is not saying it is not God saying, well, I've seen some tough things that have happened to you, so now I'm going to come and enrich your life so that nothing bad ever happens to you again, and now you'll only always have nice things happen to you. That's not what it means. It is not God cracking open the piggy bank of heaven and saying, well, now all I'm going to give you is cars and money and promotions and a big new house and a new wardrobe and a vacation. God can do that, but that's not what this passage of Scripture is saying. This is what the goodness of God is. In the context of suffering, God says this. When things are hard, I will be continually at work to bless you and to raise you and to transform you in the middle of a mess to be changed into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. That is the goodness of God. Here's the scary thing. Even as I give that definition today, there are many of us who would say, is that it? Hmm. To be like Jesus. I, I like the other interpretation where God cracks open the piggy bank. I, I would rather he did that. That's in us. That's our immaturity. 
we fail to see that all that other stuff is plastic and it's going to fade. This passage is actually moving to describe a life that is so ingrained in the love of God that the love of God becomes this permanent, immovable part of your life that actually begins to describe you as more than a conqueror, actually begins to describe that if God is for you, that no one could be against you, but I can't preach about that because that's next week and it's very exciting. (laughs) God's goodness is God's formation of Jesus Christ in the middle of something that you would think, how can anything good come out of this? Look at these verses. Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what God is doing. Chapter 5.27, to present her to him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy or blameless. That's what God is accomplishing in your life. Colossians 1.22, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Jude verse 24, to him who was able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. So what does it look like? To be like Jesus when it's hard. Well, I think Jesus knows the answer to that full well. Misunderstood. Mocked. Rejected. He was targeted. He was humiliated. Betrayed. Abandoned. He was accused. He was plotted against. He was captured. He was mistreated. He was spat on. A crown of thorns, nails into his flesh, a sword into his side. Here's the truth about me. I wish it were not the truth about me. If you did one of those things to me, if you did one of those things to me, here's what I want. I would want to hate you. If you hurt me like that, my natural inclination is I would say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? I would want to hate you if you did one of those things to me. If you did one of those things to me, I would want to retaliate and, and lash out at you. I would want to, I would want to re- pour revenge out on you. I would feel entitled to feel enraged. That's what's inside every one of us. And yet Jesus takes all of that and more. And what does he do? Well, he washes feet. He showered in spit and blood. And he dies whispering forgiveness on all of us. What a God. To those of you who are only interested in God providing some kind of pain-free existence filled with trinkets and toys, you have missed the example of his love and you have missed the example of his calling into his purposes. Church, when Christ died, he was never more central to the will of God in his life. So, church, I want you to stand tall today. I want you to stand tall knowing, I know this, I know this, that God, His ongoing activity is moving in my life for my good, and that is taking place in and through every one of us for His glory and for His honor. Church, I want to finish by asking, would you please stand with me? Everybody at home, would you stand up? Everybody in Alma, would you stand up? Mount Pleasant, stand up. And I would like to read Romans chapter 8, verse 28 together. Let's read this out loud. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. One more time, a little bit louder. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called 
according to his purpose. Blessings and love, church. Have a great week.